Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. as we journey through the writings of Luke, as we kind of unpack what does the call of God look like on our lives. And we're navigating through the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as well as we work through these topics. But I'm going to ask you a question as we start our topic today of the call when God calls us to follow him. I want to ask you a question. It may seem a little odd and out of place, but I promise you that there is a point, there's a point to it. I want to ask you, have you ever had buyer's remorse? Yes, you're like today actually. Yes, buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse is when you like, you buy something and immediately, you know, it's, you're hyped up about it, you're excited about it. Oh, I need this, this is going to change my life. Trust me, babe, we need the most expensive treadmill we could possibly get. It'll be wonderful, it'll be great. And then you buy it, you're like, I'm never going to use that thing. Right? And there's that sense of like, oh, that remorse, that regret is what you feel. And usually the higher the price tag, the higher the regret. Right? If it doesn't cost you anything, oh well. If it costs you a lot, oh man, what a bummer. I remember having buyer's remorse when I was a teenager. And this is before I could get a job, and so it was hard to earn money. My family was poor, so we didn't have like an allowance, and we didn't do, uh, we did chores, but we didn't do chores for money or anything like that. That's a w weird system that my kids are trying to advocate for. I'm like, no, I don't know that. You do chores because I feed you. You know, I don't understand the issue. But I remember as a kid, so saving up money was difficult. Saving up money was, was hard. It had to be like birthday money, Christmas, Christmas money, stealing. Just kidding. Well, maybe. Uh, spontaneous acts of charity, right? That's what I had to do to, to gain money. And so I was able over several months to finally get a large amount of money. And I made the most significant purchase that I've ever made as a person at that time. And so I bought the Abtronic. Yes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, one guy told me, he's like, yeah, I bought the same thing. I still have it. Yeah, I bought the Abtronic, this wonderful, amazing invention. It was a belt that you just put around your stomach, and it would shock you, and then that shock would contract your muscles like you were doing a sit-up or a crunch, and so you could have rock-hard abs without working out. We're selling them in the lobby today. If you'd like to purchase one for three easy pages, you know what, I'll make it two. No, I'm just kidding. I've seen a lot of infomercials. I remember it like within 24 hours. I bought it. I went to the wonderful store with a ton of credibility as seen on TV store. 
Uh, ran in there, I bought the Abtronic, put it on, and all I got, I didn't get rock hard abs. I did it. I got skin irritation, discomfort, and burn marks on my belly. <laughs> this, this is not good. And I'm regretting telling you this story. Please don't ever use this against me ever. I'm fearing the social media posts that are going to be created after this message. But I remember feeling so much regret and remorse because it took me so long to buy it. It was expensive. And the Abtronic, man, it overpromised, and boy, did it ever under-deliver. Now, I want to use this and ask you this question. It's going to sound pretty odd. Is Jesus like the Abtronic? You're like, I'm in church. I'm supposed to say no. Because the cost of following Jesus is incredibly high. There's nothing more expensive. If we're honest with the teachings of Scripture, we cannot diminish the call that Jesus places on our life. We can't diminish the cost. No one will require more of you than Jesus. No one will ask more of you than Jesus. It's incredibly expensive. In fact, he's asking for everything. For everything. And the question is, will he underdeliver? Is it worth it? If he's going to ask for everything, demand more of me than anybody else, is it worth it? Or is Jesus like the Abtronic? Expensive, but disappointing. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want you to jump to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And the big idea for today is this. If you're going to take one note away, if you're going to take one idea away from the message, I want you to take this away. Jesus asks for everything, but offers more. Jesus asks ask for everything. Everything. The cost is incredibly high, and we're going to see that. It's hard to imagine, honestly, that anybody could ask more of you than Jesus does. But what he offers you is so much more. Because even when you give him everything, what you gain is so much more. So let me show you that. Let's go to Luke chapter 14. We're going to start with verse 25. Luke chapter 14 Verse 25, Jesus is going to unpack for us, what does it mean to follow him? What's the cost of following Jesus? When he calls us, what is he calling us to? And I just got to tell you right up front, this is going to be heavy. This isn't going to be easy. These are very strong words from Jesus. Okay, so let's start out. He's left the banquet hall. We talked about that last week, how we said the big idea last week was eternity is worth, worth your time, meaning your relationship with Jesus Christ has eternal consequences, so it should have your utmost attention. There's no more important for you, a thing for you to consider or a thing for you to prioritize than your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with Jesus. And so you need to take time to consider that. Well, as we move from that and say, okay, well, what is Jesus calling me to? What would it cost to kind of start this walk? That's what Jesus is going to unpack for us this week. Well, let's just start with verse 25. He moves away from the banquet hall and then it says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them. Now this is important. It's very important. Who is Jesus talking to here? Is he talking to his disciples? Those who are already following him? No, he's talking to the crowds. So whatever Jesus is about to say is addressed to everyone. 
Jesus is going to give us very, very heavy costs. And this cost applies to everybody. What Jesus is about to talk about is not how you can get from like mature disciple to super mature disciple. How you get from like inside the room to being like in the innermost room. No, he's saying this is the, this is the ticket price right up front. This is the, the cover charge right up front. Even to get in the front door, here's the cost you have to pay. This is the first step in following me. It's addressed to the crowds, not to the disciples. And Jesus right up front, I think, gives the heavy cost. Now, as I read this and I, as I understand this, I think what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us the cost that kind of is the umbrella cost. All the other costs he talks about in the passage kind of fall under this umbrella. But look what Jesus says as he starts out verse 26. To the crowds, not the disciples. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right? Let's not try to tame the words of Jesus here. Just look at that, that last phrase. He cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus allowing for any exemptions? No. Very firmly he is saying, you cannot be my disciple unless you meet that condition. You got to hate your father, your mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Wow. What on earth does that mean? It's heavy. It's hard. This is not going to make Jesus a very popular person. You'll notice throughout our passage, Jesus is not going to sound like a very slick salesman. In fact, he's almost going to sound like he's saying, hey, 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 before you do this, yellow light. Now, I don't think we should read what Jesus is going to say as kind of like a red light. Stop, don't follow me. I don't think that's what he's saying. But I, don't th- I think it would be wrong to say that Jesus is saying like, hey, green light, just come, just come, don't worry about it. I think it's a yellow light. I think it's like, well, maybe. <laughs> Take some caution here. Because to get in, you have to hate your father, your mother, your wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Now, we have to understand what Jesus is saying in the context of the rest of Jesus' teaching. Right? We know this even in our own communication, that, that words have meaning in their sentences, and sentences have meanings within the paragraph, and paragraphs have meaning within the entire body of work. So what is Jesus' kind of larger teaching? What is Jesus' kind of overall kind of uh, call to people? Well, we have to see all of this word, especially the idea of, of hatred, in what Jesus has already talked about when it comes to love. Jesus has summarized the Old Testament commands, which are hundreds of commands. He's summarized all of those in really two commands. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he gave two. Love God and love others. Or love God and love your neighbor. Well, all those people on that list, wife, children, father, mother, all of those people would be in the other category or others category or neighbor category. Jesus told us to love God and to love others. And Jesus takes it even beyond that. He says, even those who don't love you, you still love them. He tells us to love our enemies, to bless those that curse us, to pray for those that abuse us. So even if we read Jesus' kind of teaching here of hate your father, your mother, your children, your brother, your sister, even your own life, even, even Jesus couldn't allow it to be, well, those who are hostile to you, you hate those people. No, because Jesus already told us to love our enemies. 
He's told us to love God. He's told us to love others. Jesus wants his followers, his disciples to love everybody, even if that person would be an enemy, even if that person would be set against you. So what does Jesus mean here? I think what Jesus means here is Jesus is using an idiom, a kind of a turn of phrase, a sense of language that his Jewish listeners would understand. Let me show you this in Genesis chapter 29. So you go back to the first book of the Bible. This language is used. It's kind of a turn of phrase. It's an idiom, if you will, that his Jewish hearers would understand. Because often, and well, maybe not often, but sometimes the term hatred would be used to describe not the presence of hostility, but the degree of affection and love. Sometimes it's like a a comparative term, meaning there's someone that's loved here, but there's someone who's loved all the way up here. So there's a greater love, and the gap between the one who's loved more and the one who's loved less, that gap is called hatred. But it's not about the presence of active hostility. What it's saying is, I love this less, and I love this more. Right, look at how this is true for the Jewish people as they kind of are recounting their history, or Moses is, as he describes in Genesis chapter 29. Look at verse 30. So Jacob went, so we're going to have three people here, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. So what we're told right here is there's a gap. There's one who has loved less, one who has loved more. Okay, so right now we're given this kind of comparison. But look at how that gap is further described as we go on into verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me his son, or this son. And she called his name Simeon. Notice how it started out with this comparison. One is loved, but one is loved more. And then that gap is described as what? As hatred. It'd be wrong for us to describe that Jacob hated Leah or, and he only loved Rachel. Because he committed to her. That was his other wife. Now that's another topic to talk about why there are multiple wives. That's something to talk about at a different time. But the idea is that he still loved her. I mean, he married her. He had kids with her. He nurtured her. It'd be wrong to read Genesis and say, man, he was an enemy of her, that there was hostility there. No, the idea is I love this one more than this one. And that's, I think, what Jesus is saying. Matthew, the disciple who's close to Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, he kind of gives a, what I like to call a thought-for-thought translation of what Jesus is teaching. I think Luke is giving us the word-for-word kind of translation of Jesus' teaching, whereas Matthew gives us kind of a thought-for-thought. And I think what Matthew is doing here is he's speaking to an audience that may not understand this kind of Jewish way of, of speaking, this Jewish idiom. Look how Matthew explains it in Matthew chapter 10. And we'll get this idea of loving more and loving less. Matthew chapter 10 verse 37 says this. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you see what Matthew did there? 
Reading that understanding in the understanding of Luke, plus with Genesis 29, we see what Jesus is not asking for is for us to hate people that would go against all of his other teaching. What he's saying is, I want to be number one by a significant margin. The gap has got to be big. I demand your allegiance and your affection above any other relationship. This is the cost of love. You want to follow me? Love me. Love me more than anyone else and anything else. That's a heavy cost. And now Jesus is going to talk about two more costs that kind of come out of that. I think that's the umbrella kind of cost. Look at the next verse as he describes what that looks like. Maybe that's just too high and in the clouds. Okay, Jesus love you is number one, but what does that, what does that look like? Verse 27, Jesus explains, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. Again, Jesus is making this very clear. There are no exemptions to this clause. There's no way out of it. You have to bear your cross. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. Luke chapter uh, 9 verse 51 says that Jesus fixed his eyes towards Jerusalem. Why? Because that was the place of the cross. That's the place where he's going to go and suffer and die. And Jesus is saying, I'm in pursuit of Jerusalem. I'm in pursuit of the cross. I'm going to suffer and die. But this path is not just mine. It's yours too. Come, follow me. And come, bear your cross. Jesus is giving an invitation to pain. I know, terrible salesman. Right? Jesus is saying, this is what it may cost you. You have to bear my cross. And Jesus is not going to use light pain. He's not going to use an image of, of, of slight discomfort. He uses the image of the cross, an instrument of death, an instrument of shame. Jesus is saying martyrdom is an option. It may be experienced by a follower. In fact, it must be embraced at the beginning. You may not all experience it. We may have all differing degrees of pain, but we have to realize when Jesus calls us and invites us to follow him, he's inviting us to pain. And we have to understand that that may be how our story ends. That we may lose our life in pursuit of Jesus Christ. Not running after pain, but running after him. So much so that pain won't get in our way. We'll run right through it. But we have to be willing to see that that's what it takes. The cost of pain. Then the next cost that Jesus gives, I think, is even more specific. Right? Maybe even these two are just too high and lofty, right? Maybe you've even said it to a friend, you know, maybe a sports team or something like that, and you guys, you know, you're 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 going after it and you're the underdog and you keep winning and all this stuff, and there's that bond and that camaraderie, and you say all the dude stuff you're supposed to say, like, man, I take a bullet for you, man. Like, that's how I talk when I get really manly. We took a bullet for you. Yeah, it never seemed to work. People were like, eh. <laughs> sit the bench, Paul, sit the bench. Which is what I did in most of my career in sports was sit the bench. But nobody kept it warmer than me. <laughs> so I'm just going to put that out there. Number one in seat warming. <laughs> but, you know, maybe you've said it to a friend. Like, you're like, you know what, I would die for you, man. I would take a bullet for you. Okay, that's nice. Well, nobody's running in the building with a gun, so I can't really prove it. But Jesus is going to get even more specific. Right? We're going to jump a couple verses, but I promise we'll get back to them. Jump to verse 33, Luke chapter 14. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. What is Jesus saying here? This is an invitation to surrender all your possessions. 
All of them. He says, renounce what? All that he has. There's no more hasness to the life of a disciple. You don't own anything. Now, as we see this principle kind of develop throughout the gospel or throughout the account of Acts, we, we know that the disciples would, in a sense, possess things or have things, but the idea is that they surrendered their ownership over to Jesus Christ. That really they owned nothing. Everything was his. It may look like theirs, but really it's just because it's close to them. Right? It's his proximity. God has made me a steward of these things he's put before me, but they are his. That, that I'm not just a free at my disposal to use the things around me at my will. No, I have to surrender allegiance to him and say, how would you have me use the things that you gave me? Because I don't own anything. I own nothing. Think about this now. What more could Jesus ask you? Give me your love, give me your life, and all your stuff. Wow, that's not three simple payments of $49.99. I, can't, I don't think I can even get a loan for that. My credit's not that good. Love, life, and stuff. What more could he ask for? That's expensive, Jesus. I think this is a wonderful message if you're not yet following Jesus to hear. If you're in that phase of like, you know what, Paul, I'm just exploring Jesus. Maybe you're like, you know what, friend brought me here. Great, I'm so glad you're here. I came to church for a long time before I ever committed my life to Jesus because I had questions. So if you have questions and you are curious, this is a safe place for you. And friend, let me tell you, I know this sounds heavy, but this is fair for you. This is fair for you to hear because you should know what the price is up front, what the cost is up front. And the cost is heavy. It is very heavy. He asks for everything. There's not one thing that he doesn't want his call to have authority over. At all. Your love, your life, and your stuff. And Jesus tells us, think about this. Think about this. Don't hurry. Don't rush. Don't be caught by emotion. I want you to consider this. Go back to those verses that we jumped over, starting in verse 27. Look how Jesus says, this sobering reality, this cost I'm asking you to take on, I want you to really, really consider this. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross, I'm sorry, verse 28, for which of you, deciding to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, I find these illustrations so odd. Because if you walk through the Gospels, you realize that Jesus tells illustrations, stories, analogies that really relate with his people. He tells stories about like a banquet. Okay, well, people know about eating. He tells stories about farming. Well, that makes sense, right? Knowing his first century culture, he knows that many of them are farmers. But now Jesus is using very odd illustrations. It says somebody's going to build a tower. And the language used here would be like a, a private tower over a certain piece of property. It would be like a guard tower over a vineyard. This would be a very wealthy 
landowner. Knowing Jesus' crowd that he often drew, it wasn't the elite of the elite. It wasn't the wealthy. So this illustration is hitting a really small pocket of people that may be following Jesus. But the next story he uses is what? Of a king who has command of an army of thousands. How many kings do you think were in Jesus' crowd? I'm guessing zero. So why is he using these illustrations that don't really relate with his people? His people aren't going to be like, well, you know, the last time I had to send out 10,000 men against 20,000, I did consider that. No. I think the reason Jesus uses these very lofty and very serious illustrations is because he wants to show how significant the cost is. This is a life and death decision. This is like going to war and realizing, am I willing to risk my men? Can we win the day? Or will this invading army overtake us? And then he talks about the consequence, right, in both of them. The one who built the tower, it said that he, he didn't really take time to really consider the cost up front. And all he could build, what does it say? A foundation. Now, I'm not a builder, but I'm pretty sure that's the start of the thing, right? Like, imagine if you were like, oh, Pastor Paul, I saw you were building a house on the corner of da-da-da-da in Hillsboro. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be great. Six bedrooms, five bathrooms. That's a lot of bathrooms. Right? And a den and all this stuff, 3,000 square feet. And you're like, wow, Pastor Paul, man, he is a, he's an eclectic man, man of many talents and discipline. I knew he was awesome. Right? And then I start building and I lay the foundation and I get to the guys. I'm like, hey, guys, so we ran out of money. No walls, no windows, no plumbing, just the foundation. That's some good concrete. Then every time you drove by it, you'd be like, good thing he's just a pastor. <laughs> right? Don't quit your J-dob, day job, Paul. Right? Imagine the shame. Right? And that's what Jesus is trying to say. The consequence of not understanding the longevity that Jesus is calling for can end in the consequence of shame. I got emotional, I got excited, I was in a hurry, I'll do the Jesus thing. And then something happens, life happens. Right, you experience pain, you experience some friction, some tension, you get embarrassed at your job because you're a follower of Jesus, your friends disown you, something else happens, and you find yourself in a space like, I can't finish this work. And there's a sense of what? Shame there. The more devastating consequence is the second illustration Jesus uses. The consequence is defeat. I didn't have enough. I went out in battle, but I didn't have enough. I wasn't ready for the long haul. And this is what exactly what God calls us to. It's a faith that will finish all the way to the end. That's what we're committing to. It's a decision that's more weighty than our, than our vows that we commit to our spouse. We don't hurry that decision, right? We think about it. We process it. We ask our friends. We, we kind of get to that moment and then say, okay, let me consider. Do I want to give a lifelong commitment to this woman? Do I want to do that? That's what Jesus is saying. This is what I'm asking you to do. I'm going to ask for everything. Everything. Are you willing to pay that cost? Are you going to get to the point where life gets hard and you're just going to throw your hands up? And not commit to me. What a sobering reality. 
Jesus says in the story, he uses two verbs that I think are interesting. One, he says that, that the builder had to sit down and count the cost. That The term count means to, means to uh, it, it would relate to counting votes or counting numbers like in finance. The idea is there's a sense of diligence there and care there. The term deliberate when it comes to the king was deliberating, do I have enough troops to, to fight this invading army? That idea deliberate, deliberate would, would can be used to describe like two people talking and debating an idea. Here it means within your own head. You had thoughts going back and forth. Should I do this or should I do this? Should I do this or should I do this? That's what he's talking about. And I think it's sometimes, and I think I, I think I've done this. I think we hurry some decisions to Jesus too much. Like I'm a pastor and, and first and foremost, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and watching somebody step over the line to follow Jesus is like the most thrilling and exciting thing I get to see. It really is. And if you've never had that opportunity where you've shared your faith with somebody and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'm telling you, it's, it's addictive. Like you'll just want to see it over and over and over again. It's, I mean, it's an amazing moment. It's a miraculous moment. It's a spiritual moment. It's an incredible moment. But notice what Jesus does here. He's starting to draw some attention. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Consider what I'm asking of you. Everything forever. I want it all. Your love, your life, and your possessions for the long haul. Are you willing to cross that line? I remember one of the most kind of saddening conversations I had with this young man I was still kind of early in ministry and there was this message that was given out and this call to follow Jesus for the first time. And there was this young man who responded to that call. And so I was the guy, I was kind of on the side. You see our prayer teams like underneath the screen. You're going to see them uh, today underneath the screens to talk to anybody. And so I was kind of one of those guys. And uh, so we were going to have a conversation, but the service was still going. They were playing some songs, kind of like what we do. And, and so there we had these like side rooms. And so I went into the side room and we just began to talk. And I, I sat kind of facing the door and there's this little window, this little sliver right here. And so he starts talking to me. Yeah, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. Right? And get that excitement going. And, and I've got another staff member looking through the window because he wants to know should this person get baptized right then and there. So he's kind of looking at me. The guy can't see him and he's going thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm serious. And I was like, this is weird. I'm feeling way too much pressure right now. And so I just kind of put up my hand like this, like, okay, we, we can do this another time. You know, we have multiple services, so we can do this as a note. So I kind of put my hand up a little bit. And so I'm just talking to him, and I said, and this is always the anchor verse I always go back to. When I talk about sharing my faith, it's because it's the verse that was used with me when I decided to follow Jesus. It's Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And so I'm sitting there talking to this young man. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes, I believe that. Wow, that's awesome. Jesus says you got to confess him as Lord. That means boss. That means he makes the rules. That means he asks for surrender of all areas of your life. Now this doesn't mean stand tall morally, go achieve. No, what it means is bow. That's what it means. I'm not telling you go perform and do all these good works. What I'm telling you is you have to submit every part of your life over to Jesus, to King Jesus. He's Lord, he's boss. I said, do you say that Jesus is the boss of your life, that he's the Lord? And he kind of looked at me like, uh, I said, well, let's, let's talk about some areas of your life. Right? And as a pastor, you always know this one. Let's talk about your dating life. Silence. <laughs> All 
And then so we started talking about his relationship with his girlfriend. And I said, hey, man, I'm not asking you to get it all cleaned up, but I am asking you, are you okay if Jesus makes the rules on this? That you confess him as Lord as this part of your life. And we can work through what that means and growing in that, but you've got to confess allegiance to him. He's number one, not your girlfriend. And so you're going to have to adjust some things because that's King Jesus. And again, I'm not asking you to stand taller. I'm asking you to bow lower because Jesus is asking you to bow over everything. And say, Jesus, you have it all. I said, are you ready for that? He said, no. Now, I could take that as, man, what? Way to go, Paul. We could have had one more decision today. <laughs> but I look back at it now, thinking of this passage, that was probably the right thing to do. Wait, 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 wait. He's asking for everything. Everything. And maybe this is why. In the American church, we're grieving over, wow, look at how many people aren't going to church anymore. Wow, look at how many people, look, uh, religion is dying in America. We're becoming less Christian. Are we? Or did we sell a cheap commitment? Did we as like church leaders, and right, I'm a pastor, so I'm a church leader. Did we sell an easy way in? Right? Half price discipleship. 80% off. No, that's not going to work. No wonder, right? Jesus says in Matthew 13, he's talking about the parables. Hey, some of the seed is sown, it goes on the ground, and it grows, and that's what happens. The sun comes, scorches it out, and it dies. Some seed goes out, oh, it comes up, but then the thorns come around and choke the thing out. Some lands on the good soil, and it grows, and it bears fruit. Notice what Jesus is anticipating there. Jesus is saying, there are some that are going to grow. There are some that are going to respond. There are some that say, yes, me. There are some that are going to get wet in that tank over there. But are they going to make it? And I've been a part, I've been a part of a lot of camp decisions, right, in moments of commitment. I've generated those, right, as a youth pastor. And that was well-intentioned. That was good. But was I selling them on some cheap grace. Again, not that was saying you be perfect, come and be perfect. That's not the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus is come and bow and surrender all to me. Did we make that clear? I don't know. But that's what Jesus makes clear here. He asks for everything for all your life. Is that worth it? That is expensive. That is a high cost. Is it worth it? Oh, it's so worth it. Because what he offers you is more. More than you can ever give. Way more than you can ever give. Look what Jesus offers us. Jesus is not the Abtronic. He does not overpromise and underdeliver. Look at this. In John chapter 11, Jesus is talking to a grieving family who have just felt the sting of death. They have lost their brother, their loved one. The one they care about. The one that Jesus even loved. His name was Lazarus. And Jesus speaks to one of the grieving sisters. And look what Jesus says. What does Jesus have to offer? He asks for everything, but he gives more. And this is the more that he gives. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now this is important to note. Jesus does not say, I give resurrection and I give life. He does do that, but what is Jesus closely tying to himself? 
The gifts are me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. You cannot separate my gifts from me. You want me? When you get close to me, you get life. When you get close to me, you get resurrection. That's what I give you. What does Jesus offer that is more you ever give than can ever give? He offers himself. To come and to dwell with you, to commune with you, for you to know your creator. That's what he offers you. And he gives you this life, this life that is also resurrection. Look what he says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now this is something that we easily emphasize in Christianity and it's appropriate that we do. That there is a life after death. But that's not it. We're selling eternal life short if we only talk about what happens after death. Because look at what Jesus says right after that. I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he says this. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's confusing, Jesus. Because you just said in the last sentence, though you die, yet shall he live, you'll never die. Wait a second. Did you just say I would die? Though I die, shall live, but I'll never die. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is this. I'm going to give you eternal life. You're going to know me now. Not just later. Now. And I'm going to give you a life that is so indestructible. That is so unstoppable. That it will pass through death. Like you never even died. That's how rich the life is that I give you. You can pass through death. Jesus asks for everything. Man, what he offers is so much more. It's eternal life. It's knowing him. So let me ask you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, do you need to revisit that cost? We all know if you're you're married, you know. You got to revisit those vows, don't you? I've been married for 17 years. I know what I said to my bride. I know what I committed to her. But I got to revisit that. Every month, every week, every day, sometimes multiple times in a day. Don't amen that. Lindsay was in the first service. She doesn't need more encouragement. But it's true. I got to reevaluate. Hey, what, what did you commit to? You committed in sickness and in health. That's what I committed to. To the end of this thing, as we like to say, I'm ride or die. Right? You may not get that phrase. That's okay. You got a little bit of my past there. <laughs> right? But that's what, that's what you're committing to. And I've got to remind myself, in this life, hey, I committed to life. I committed to this. So I'm going to enter into this argument that we're having, knowing that the only way out of this thing is in a body bag. And I'm not putting you in one, and I hope you're not putting me in one, so we're going to figure this one thing out. we got to reevaluate that commitment. And maybe there's some things, honestly, that have gotten in the way of your commitment to Jesus. And you can feel it because you're not feeling life right now. You're not feeling eternal life right now. You're living But you're not feeling eternal life. You're not feeling communion with Jesus. Is there some stuff in the way? Stuff you need to say, you know what? That needs to move away. I need to count the cost. And that's worth it. Because he gets everything. Maybe you need that. Maybe you need that. I encourage you, evaluate that. As you start this year, evaluate that. What are some of the costs that just need to get out of the way? Make some commitments. Make some changes that prioritize Jesus. And friend, whatever that inconvenience costs you, it's worth it. It's worth it. 
Because he offers you everything. I'm so excited that many of you, many of you, more than we were prepared for, prioritized your spiritual walk. We were hoping to get 100 people through our 10-week discipleship journey in three semesters this year. The first semester, first starting it next week. We have 96 people who are joining us on this 10-week discipleship journey. How cool is that? Now, what does that mean for you? It means we're full. We can't take anymore. But we're going to do it two more times. And maybe that time is the time where you prioritize your relationship with Jesus. But you can still do that today. You can still get into a small group. We still have many other small groups that got spots and openings. Whatever it's going to cost you, it's worth it. And maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And you're thinking to yourself, Paul, what a terrible sell you made today. I get that. But maybe you're saying to yourself, you know what, it's worth it. Because I want to know my creator and I want eternal life. A life right now that can pass through death. And I'm willing to give him everything. If that's you, I'm going to pray a prayer here just in a moment to close us out. If you want to commit your life to Jesus, you can pray that prayer with me. If it means something in your heart, then it's meaningful. Saying the words aren't magical. But if it's meaningful to you, it'll be meaningful to the Lord. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Christ, we see, man, you call us to a very heavy calling, a very costly calling. A calling you don't wanna, want us to take lightly. You don't want us to hurry into. You don't want it to be an, an emotional decision. There are emotions behind it, but it's not grounded only on emotion. You ask us, take count of the cost. Deliberate, because I'm asking for everything. I'm asking for everything. Jesus Christ, we see it is worth it because what you offer is more. What you offer is yourself. And to know you is to know life. To know you is to know the resurrection. Holy Spirit, I pray you just be cleaning out some of the things in our life that just clutter our commitment to you, that get in the way. Maybe there's areas right now that we're just in this room or online we're being convicted of that I need to set this aside. Jesus does not have lordship over this part of my life, and he needs to. I need to bow my knee more to him. Holy Spirit, I pray you work in that in our lives. And for those in the room that you're ready to stop, step over that line and just commit your life to Jesus. It's not something I want you to rush into, but if you're ready to do it, I'm here to walk with you in that. You could pray a very simple prayer like this. You could pray just between you and God in the silence of your own heart. You could say something like this. You can say, Father, I see. I see that I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. I've missed the mark. But I see that Jesus died and he rose again. He took the penalty for my sin and now I can be forgiven. So today, today, I commit my life to you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.